From New York City to Los Angeles, Powered Up Talk Radio is giving women of all ages permission to live the life they'd always dreamed of. Each week, Powered Up Talk Radio explores innovative ways to stay focused in a world that's experiencing dramatic changes. Find out who you are, discover your purpose, and challenge yourself to be all you can be, right here, right now. Here are your hosts, Sandra Beck and Linda Franklin. Hey ladies, this is Sandra Beck and Linda Franklin has the day off and we've got such a great show today. We're going to talk about learning, we're going to talk about education, we're going to talk about writing. We've got so much to talk about and our guest today is Lois Letchford. Now, Lois has a very, very interesting background and she's multi-continental and you guys know that I love to reach out to the entire globe to find great ideas, great strategies so you can power up both in your personal life and your professional life. And what I like about this lady is that she shares a very common mindset with me because when I was going to school, I struggled in a lot of areas and my little brother struggled in a lot of areas. And now he's a NASA rocket scientist and I'm on the radio and I own my own technology company. And we both have done very well for ourselves. But had we listened to the conventional thinking of the day, and this is no respect to teachers and counselors and, and you know, people in the education industry, but they really didn't recognize my gifts and talents, and they certainly didn't recognize my brother's gifts and talents, and those things were very hard for us, and I think, you know, we both still carry some of those scars uh, with us today, but we're here to give you hope. We're here to give you direction. We're here to give you so much if you fall outside the traditional mold of education in our country today, and we're here to give you hope. If you're raising a child that is not in the same category of other kids, or you are that child that has now grown up and you never felt you quite fit in, uh, this is the show for you today. Lois, welcome to the show. Good afternoon, Sandra. It's nearly evening here in the middle of a snowstorm or at the end of a snowstorm. So I hope it's lovely weather where you are. It is. It's 70 and sunny, and I went for a hike with my cousin Bob this morning who flew from Seoul to Minneapolis to Los Angeles just to make a great, beautiful day uh, for us to spend some time together. So I really... I'm so excited to have you because you feel like family. You know, your family is associated with Rensselaer. My dad went there. You know, you have had this extraordinary experience teaching um, your son. And there's so much for us to talk about today. I don't even know where to begin, but let's start with introducing you and go ahead and give us your background. I started my career as a physical education teacher. I then went to London, met my husband, who happened to be on a scholarship and working with London, also Australian, and we both came from the same area of Brisbane, and we met on the other side of the world. We married and then had these children, and you think children are just going to follow your pattern, and you start to discover there's a whole new world. And my second son, Nicholas, struggled with reading. In fact, he failed grade one. He came out with... 10 words, he had sat in the classroom and I think the teacher had screamed at him most of the day and he came out with nothing. So that was the beginning of the story and what do you do and how do you go from there? 
And I was privileged because my husband is a professor and we went to England in 1995 and I took Nicholas out of school and started to teach him at home. Initially, it was a total failure because I was relying on standardised books and I had to throw them out and start again and instead of seeing a failing Nicholas, I saw a child who was inquisitive and curious and who asked questions I could not answer. And that was the start of the journey. He learnt to read and I became incredibly excited about teaching reading. Do you want me to go any further than that? I would love you to keep going because it is such a wonderful story and it's got a happy ending. It has. Well, we actually learned about the history of world mapping with my son, Nicholas, in 1995, which is not a typical subject for a seven-year-old. And it's while we were looking at uh, Captain Cook, the last of the great explorers and the map that he had, we asked questions, what knowledge did Cook have when he left England? And then we started to find maps that were associated with Cook. And we asked questions, who came before Cook? And then Nicholas asked, who came before Columbus? And I did not have that answer. And so we were excited. We were in Oxford. We could find out about Ptolemy and we came away with the Ptolemy map. And then Nicholas asked, can I see Cook's original maps? And that was the day I knew my son did not have a low IQ. We returned to Australia and I told the diagnostician, Nicholas has asked to see Cook's original maps. And I was so excited. And she turned to me, she put her hands on her hips and she said, well, he's the worst child I've seen in 20 years of teaching. And if you want to do something, give a child a label that they can't do anything and you gave me an in or she gave me an in to say, he may be what you say he is. I know he can learn. We've got to change how we teach. And that is what I did from there on in again. And it inspired me. And what I learned was we can teach these children who have been pushed to the sidelines. We just have to know more. And so that was the start of it. And that well, and we just have to adjust. You know, the, the idea, you know, today it seems so funny to me, Lois, that we would have one way to teach kids. You know, my dad was just talking to my Uncle Gary today. They're both 83 and 84 about when the television first came out and everybody had to sit five feet away from it because you'd ruin your eyes. And, you know, the television is just a toy and nobody could ever learn anything. And then my dad's like, wow. He's like, you know, my kids watch Sesame Street and PBS and, you know, they learned more in... And, you know, just sitting and watching and playing than they did anywhere else. And, you know, there's so many preconceived ideas about what learning means and what learning looks like that it's shocking to me that they would think your son or me or my brother would somehow not be able to do anything because we couldn't pass what they thought was their standard. I totally agree with you. I totally agree with you. And to me now, it's so important that we teach children to learn to read because my son was seven and a half when he was reading and he has a significant language problem. There's no question about that, but he still must learn to read. And if he didn't learn to read, he could not have found his way 
to become a regular student in the classroom. And we would never have known what he had. Well, and I think there's lots of parents, like I remember my brother and I are close in age, and I remember my mom actually yelling at somebody. I don't know if it was a teacher or a guidance counselor or whoever it was, but she was like, my child is not dumb. You know, he may struggle in some of these. You know, she used to watch my brother, the NASA brother, take engines apart when he was in elementary school and put them back together, and everything made sense to him. Now, could he put a noun and a verb together? No. Could he spell properly? No. But I think at the core of us, we know what our children can and cannot do. And so you, I think as a mother, you have to listen to your gut to go, you know what? There is some issues here that we can address. And quite frankly, you know, I have two kids, Lois, and I'm raising, you know, one kid has some challenges on the spectrum. The other one has some challenges in the other direction. And guess what? All kids have challenges, but some are more visible and some are more easily recognized than others. Definitely. Well, my big drive from what I have learned about my son and the study I have done since, because of my son, I became a reading specialist. It's the way we approach reading as to whether we include students in the program or whether we push them on the side. And there are simple things we can do as teachers that make a significant difference. Do you want to know what I think is so important? Yes, absolutely. Right. The way our children think is in pictures. When we teach and we give our sight words, and the sight words are those little words, the in, the of, the it, the but, the have, and, the, and you know, those little words that seem to be meaningless. And we put those words out to our children and we put them on the table and say, learn them without any thought to what do they mean or how am I teaching them? What's the foundation for these words? My foundation is these words are in our oral language. We have to connect it to the written language and we have to show our children how the oral language and the written language connect and disconnect. And by that, by that I mean, I, when I start teaching my children, I start with would, couldn't, should. Seems odd, but for older children, I do would, could, and should. And I have a box, a shoe box, and I have on the front what could be in this box, what should be in this box, and what would I like to find in this box. Oh. Then, you know, then I give them a couple of choices, and then they open the box, and inside there are more boxes. And then you are more boxes and a bottle of juice, and the bottle of juice is nicely wrapped in bubble wrap. And on it, again, it's what could be in it. And you look at it and you think, yes, it could be a number of things. What should be in it and what would I like to find in it? And under that note, that it says there's a letter under this note that you must read before you make a decision. And you read the note and it's a letter from the zoo to me saying the contents of this bottle could be elephant pee. <laughs> and yeah. And the elephants had such a difficult time peeing into the bottle provided. You have got engagement. You've got humour. You've got the child saying, I know these words. You've got rhyming words. They're connecting. They're easy to remember. That is brilliant. I need to take us to commercial break. I'm still laughing about the elephant pee. I can't imagine 
any kid not loving this exercise. And you actually clarified for me, and I'm definitely well over elementary school age on could, should, and would. I think I learned more today than, you know, probably my years combined. We're here today with Lois Letchford. You can check her out online. Lois, L-O-I-S, Letchford, L-E-T-C-H-F-O-R-D.com. She does have a book coming out in March of 2018 by Acorn Publishing, Reversed a Memoir. You're going to want to stick around for the rest of today's show. Stay with us. We've got lots more ahead. We'll be right back. It's marching down the road. Man cannot live by bread alone. He must have his peanut butter. Peanut butter is a pate of childhood, and it's not just for kids, as dogs love it too. Last night, I gave my dog a pill hidden in peanut butter. What's a word for a messy concoction that helps the medicine go down? Sliver sauce. Mice apparently prefer peanut butter to cheese when it comes to luring them into the trap. But there are even more practical uses for peanut butter. Peanut butter contains natural oils, which makes it perfect for removing all kinds of sticky things, like gum stuck in your shoe or in your hair. What's a word for the fear of peanut butter sticking to the roof of your mouth? Arachibutophobia. And according to Barry Goldwater, if you don't mind smelling like peanut butter for two or three days, peanut butter is a darn good shaving cream. It's marching I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words you never heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. It's marching Believe it or not, there are times when even I can't think of the right word. The inability to think of a word is called lethologica. Texas Monthly Magazine recently came out with some colorful homespun sayings. Old as dirt and common as cornbread in the Lone Star State. Did you hear about the Texan that could strut sitting down? But he was all hat and no cattle, which means very boastful, but with nothing about which to boast. On top of that, he don't know a widget from a wangdoodle or a diddly squat. His wife was a mighty strong woman. She'd charge hell with a bucket of ice water. She was always telling folks that he was so tight, he could squeeze a nickel till the buffalo screamed. She also said he was famous for calling the hogs all night or snoring. It's marching I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words you never heard vocabulary with my new app, Too Funny for Words. We're having a great discussion. Let's get back to it. Hey, ladies, this is Sandra Beck, and Linda Franklin has the day off, and we're visiting today with Lois Letchford. She has the book coming out in 2018, March, by Acorn Publishing, Reversed a Memoir. And she is here today to educate both teachers and parents on how to help struggling readers. And for some of us, we have trouble reading just learning how to read, but there's others of us like me who learned how to read very fast but retained nothing. And when you talked about bringing in visual imagery and children think in pictures, I think, Lois, a lot of us never stop thinking in pictures. When you were describing things and I could see the could, would, and should, what could be in the box, what should be in the box, you know, what could be in the box, could, would, and should – all of a sudden, I got such a greater understanding because you painted that picture for me, and they they became something other than just meaningless words that started with a different letter. And 
I want to talk about, you know, what what did you do next? Because I still the the elephant piece slays me. Like only a mother of boys could make that that juice container contain elephant pee, and that's just to me is just a sheer stroke of brilliance. But I want to know what what happens next. We got the elephant pee. What could, should, and would be in the elephant pee bottle? Well, what happens next is you always have to read. And one of the components of children who get pushed to the side is they only do decoding and they don't read. So the book I associate with this is called The Little Mole Who Knew It Was None of His Business. And it's the little mole wakes up one morning and something plop lands on his head. But he is so short-sighted he couldn't see anyone around. So he comes to the bird and he says, Did you do this on my head? And the bird says, me? No, how could I? I do it like this. And its poop splashes down on the ground. And so the the mole meets all these other animals and their poop stands on the ground. And now, and then I get to the end of the story and I say to my students, what is the it in the story, I'll throw the title of the book again, The Little Mole Who Knew It Was None of His Business. If you don't get that it is meaningful, funny. And so that's how I start. Because it is a word, it's a short vowel, followed by consonant T. It's one of the easiest words to read. The meaning in the dictionary takes 15,000 words to describe it. Oh, wow. And every time you come to the word it, it is meaningful and it changes depending on the context of the sentence. And that is ignored when we are teaching children. Does that make sense? I was I was just looking up the dictionary thing for it, and I'm like, holy bananas. Like, yeah, it's like the shortest word, one of the shortest words in the English language with the biggest amount of definitions. And you're right, it is fluid, and it does change. And if you ask me what the word it means, I wouldn't, I wouldn't even know where to begin. Yes. Well, if you want a funny book, The Little Mole Who Knew It Was None of His Business is absolutely hilarious. It's a kid's picture book, and it's... Once the students start to work out that it is important, then the other pronouns, the she and the he and the they, also become equally important. And you're not teaching children superficial comprehension. You've got the deep comprehension that they talk about in the classroom, that the skilled readers get at the drop of a hat. And you and I, as more difficult, more picture readers, do not get unless we are taught it. And often- now you mentioned something. You said decoding. What is decoding? You said they're they're busy spending time decoding. Decoding is being able to read the words, and they haven't got the short vowels and they haven't got the long vowels. So you spend time reading words. Uh, flat. Let's change flat to uh, bat. Let's change bat to sat. Let's change sat to sit. And can we change sit to sight? So they're doing that individual decoding and practicing 
doing different words, but they're then not taking that word and seeing how it works in context and how it changes in context. Got it, got it. So, right, so they're, they're so hyper-focused on one small aspect of it, they can't see how it relates to everything else. Yes, and the problem with language, written language, is that it is not static, it's not stationary, that words change from nouns to verbs to adjectives, and we don't teach our children that. No, and I think... You know, when you look at, at even the the teaching of language, it's so hard with some of this stuff because the, there's so many cultures, too, that we deal with in the United States that having certain words mean certain things is, is almost defeating. In my, my younger son's classroom, you know, we have, um, we have like nine out of 30 uh, different nationalities. Yes. And All different... Time. I'm sorry? And all trying to speak English at a very at different rates. Right. At different rates and different words mean different things to different people and different families. I know as funny as this sounds, Lois, when I was when my kids started elementary school, the parents were all invited to to attend this seminar to learn about how to help your kids in school, you know, like what you should do, what you shouldn't do, you know, all these different instructions, which was really cool for me. But they were saying um, the word the, T-H-E, was the. And I said, well, sometimes it's the. Yes. And they're like, no, it's the. And I said, at the end of the movie, it's not the end, it's the end. And, yes. I, you know, just me being raised in New York and my kids being raised in California, there were different differences of opinion, even just as simple as using the article the or the. That's a common problem, and my approach is, like you said, use more pictures because what happens with pictures is it takes away the ambiguity. What are you talking about? If I've got a picture in front of me, you know what it is, and I know what it is. If we just use language, your picture might be different to my picture, but if we've got a picture in front of us, ah, there you see the lights go on in the children's minds. Ah, now I know what you're talking about. Ah, we do say the apple, and sometimes we do say the end and the end, and it's the same word. It's pronounced two different ways. Right, and that's hard. If you're just learning to read or you're struggling, you know, that was very difficult for, for, for me, even as an adult learner in the classroom. Yes, yes, yes. And I go on, I do a lot of work, not so much with the, but with all of the other words until the child can say, ah, this isn't as bad as what I thought it was. I can do this. One of my students, a 15-year-old, struggled with the word what, W-H-A-T, and he kept saying, what hat? And I had to come up with an activity until he got the word what, because he just didn't see the word what hat and what as being the same and it's writing things so that he can say what is your name what are you wearing what is in this bag what is in this cup until he connects and he says ah i've got it and that's why i approach things it is because there's lots of those like i know the one that that both my brother and i struggled with is through and thought ah 
you know, that took a long time to master even those just, you know, like how many times you want to say, well, I thought I did it or I thought I did it. I threw it, did it, (laughs) you know, it's, it's, it's not easy. And you would get it right in oral language and it would be different in written language. Am I right? Absolutely. Like when, when both of us can speak a lot of things, but if I sit down to write the, the, the letters, a lot of times they end up in the wrong order and the kids, my own kids laugh at me because when I handwrite stuff, I have to handwrite super slow. And if I'm just handwriting, like, you know, like writing in my journal, you know, Max, my older son just looked at me, he goes, mom, he goes, it looks like gibberish. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, the RE is not at the front of the set, the front of the word, it's at the end, and it's ER, not RE. And, you know, they just, I don't know why it does it, but, you know, but it doesn't mean that we can't learn. It doesn't mean we can't be really good at what we do. Yes, that's exactly right. Well, I'll take you back to my son's story, since you wanted to know about that. My son, we were in Australia when he was called the worst child ever. We had that six months in England, which blew my mind. We went back to Australia and he did learn to read. And and he's doing very well because he's learning disabled and he's exceeded expectations. He's reading and writing. We moved to Lubbock, Texas, and you think, wow, wow. We moved to Lubbock, Texas, and he went from the bottom of the school to the top for many reasons. And one of the reasons was that we were listening to books on CD. He increased the amount of time he was reading. He went from to read two hours a night, six and seven nights a week. And that was, you know, he zoomed. He went on and he completed his undergraduate degree in engineering and mathematics. And guess where he is now? Where is he? He has just completed a PhD from Oxford. Wow. In applied mathematics. We go to his graduation in May this year, May 12th, he graduates. That is fantastic. And it just goes to show with the right direction and the right support, the, the, the outcomes for our kids are unlimited. Exactly. Yes, that, that's exactly right. And I never expected him to do what he did. And every time he's gone somewhere, he's just got stronger and stronger and stronger. Well, I want to talk about that confidence building aspect when we come back from the break. We're talking today with Lois Letchford. You can find her at LoisLetchford.com. Her book uh, coming out uh, is Reversed, a memoir, and it's set for publication in March of 2018 by Acorn Publishing. So you're going to want to get a copy of this, especially if someone in your life is struggling, whether they struggle as a child or you know that they struggled as a child and carry that that forward with them we'll be back after the break with lois letchford that's loisletchford.com we'll be back after these messages stay with us we've got lots more ahead we'll be right back night my husband was laughing as he was reading about the differences between men and women according to the article men get single tusks or hiccups more often than women 
Everyone knows that women are better at multitasking than men. I'm good at both multitasking and procrastinating, which means right now there are 28 things that I'm putting off until later. What's another word for a person who puts everything off until the last minute? A cunctator. Women blink nearly twice as much as men. And while men can read smaller print than women, women can hear better. In fact, when a woman says, what? She heard you. She's just giving you a chance to change what you said. It's words you never heard. I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words you never heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. It's the Fitness Minute with fitness expert, Annette Hammond. When eating out, sushi is a wise choice. The Mayo Clinic says that most types of seafood are relatively low in calories and are full of nutritional benefits. The calories in sushi vary depending on the dish and how it's prepared. In fact, the same sushi dish may have a different nutritional profile when it's prepared by a different chef or made in a certain restaurant. This depends on the specific mix of ingredients. Generally though, sushi can be included in a healthy eating plan. To reduce the calories in your sushi meal, avoid anything prepared with mayonnaise or added sauce. Begin your meal with low calorie soup. Pass over the shrimp tempura rolls and choose the cucumber rolls instead. Be sure to order the sushi without any rice at all because one cup of cooked white rice has about 240 calories. I'm Annette Hammond. We're having a great discussion. Let's get back to it. Hey, ladies, this is Sandra Beck, and I'm here with Lois Lutchford, and we are talking today about, you know, learning disabilities, about difficulties uh, that, that, pose our friends, our family, our nieces, our nephews, our kids, our brothers and sisters. And I want to focus on this segment about what does that do to the psychology of the kid? Now, neither of us are shrinks or psychologists, but I can tell you from raising children and from having my own experience that without the proper parenting support and intervention, kids can adopt a belief that they're broken, that they can't be fixed, that the future is not bright for them. You know, I saw it with my my little brother. I saw it in aspects of myself. And, um, and it really wasn't even the kids being cruel. You know, nobody was ever really cruel to me or cruel to my brother. Um, they did tease him about stuttering a little bit, but, you know, it wasn't anything earth-shattering. What was earth-shattering was that core belief that something is wrong with you and it will never be right. And it's so easy for children to adopt these belief systems, Lois. This weekend, um, my son Zach had his little buddy over, Logan, and Logan stutters. And Logan, to compensate for his stuttering, learned to look away, put his head down, and speak really quietly so nobody could hear him stutter. 
And we were out by the pool and I said, hey, Logan, look at me, hold your head up and tell me what you want to say. And it took him a little bit to say what he wanted to say. And once he got it out, I said, you know, you know, stuttering can be a mark of genius. And I said, my brother's a NASA rocket scientist and he stuttered. And my dad's like, yeah, I stuttered. My father studied and and he's like, or stuttered, you know, we're all successful today. So don't take that as a mark of, of being embarrassed. He's like, take it as a mark. And his little face brightened up. And I know I'm only one pebble in a big pond, but our kids need reinforcement that whatever challenges they're having, maybe they're permanent, maybe they're not. Maybe it'll hold them back, maybe they're not. You know, if a kid has a trouble kicking a soccer ball, like on my kid's soccer team, Lois, the coach will work with them, work with them, work with them, work with them to get them to kick that soccer ball. But a kid has trouble reading or a kid has trouble in math. Yeah, there's a few exceptional teachers that'll go the extra mile. But by and large, they'll put more effort into kicking a soccer ball correctly than they will to reading or writing the alphabet. You, you are absolutely right. I taught my son. I am like you. I grew up reading words, not comprehending. And it your core insight is, what is wrong with me? Why yep. can't I do it? And I, when I was in Lubbock, Texas, our family was there, I was given a job as the district reading specialist. I took children who had failed reading programs and taught them to read. I taught children from grade one to grade 12. And I was successful with, the, with 99% of them ones I wasn't successful with had were emotionally disturbed and had significant issues at that time which stopped them from learning to read but the other kids I all taught and the children would come to me you know their head is down just like you said with your little friend who stuttered their head is down their shoulders are sloped oh do I have to do this what are we going to do you know is it going to be more of I can't do it and it's terrifying watching those kids come to me my heart breaks. It does. It does. You know, here's this beautiful little boy full of life and full of fun. And, you know, the minute he had to say something to me, you know, he went into the turtle. And, you know, that's where I think adults and, and soccer coaches and friends of parents, friends, all of those things can do a lot to making a child feel safe in learning. Yes. Because for many of them, it's it's not a safe place to be. Yeah. Well, my big drive with my book and all that I do is greater teacher knowledge of the reading process. If teachers have the knowledge, more children will learn to read. And one of my people I talk to says, this is... Needed, absolutely necessary for some, but it's good for all. So we're not saying, oh, you treat these children more in a different way, but the whole class can learn in the way I teach and everyone is more effective in learning. And that's what we need too. Right, because this is not about separating out kids who need more help and giving them more new different. This is something that, that works for everybody. It's just a shift in the way we teach something. Yes, that's exactly right. Exactly right. You and know, and you, I, yep. 
Go oh, ahead. I was just going to say, like softwares, like, you know, I'm a, I'm a tech person, Lois, and I work a lot with software, and I look at software version 1.0 to software version 9.0, you know, that might have 10 iterations for every point, so there's been 100 different improvements in that that software that that's doing something or teaching us something, you know, a hundred micro improvements just to get from 1.0 to 10.0. So why would we not apply that to our teaching practices? I'm struggling to go down that route because I come to the conclusion a lot is what we believe as teachers and what you believe actually impacts what you do. And my belief is that I can teach that child sitting in front of me. Many teachers, and reading teachers in particular, well, say, you know, it's the deficit theory, the kid's just dumb, he just can't do it. And they don't know what they have to do, the teachers have to do, to help this kid improve. It's a battle I'm fighting at this moment with a child. So I find it fascinating that the power of what we think impacts our teaching so much. It's called self-efficacy, what we believe. Sure. Well, you know? Yeah, there's that adage that if you believe you can, the only time you're right is if you believe you can't, you know, because then you don't try. So the only time you're 100% right is if you don't try. If you believe you can, you got a shot. If you believe you can't, you know, you're, you're done. So if a teacher believes that they can't do anything for this child, then they're right. Yes. And but not because the child can't do it, because the teacher is not going to do it. My son went to school in a high socioeconomic area. We were three kilometers from the university, a major university in Australia. And the teacher sent home, Nicholas, two sentences with sight words. And the word saw came up. And she sent home the sentence, I saw a cat climb a tree. And the second sentence was, I saw a man rob a bank. And then Nicholas read the sentences to me. And he said, I saw a cat. And he stopped, shook his head and read, I was a cat. No, he said. Then he tried, I had a cat and I assed a cat. And it's this was a major turning point in my learning about teaching reading. What's going on? Nicholas is standing there taking saw as being an object or he's cutting the cat in half and saying this doesn't make sense. The teacher gave him sentences that he did not understand. If she had walked with him and talked with him, and looked at things and said, oh, look at that person, what are they doing? Look at this, what are they doing? And then turned away and said, we saw this person sweeping the street. We saw this child playing with the ball. The child knows the meaning of the word saw and so do you. And it's the way we teach that becomes absolutely critical for children like my son and like for you and me. Well, and I think it has to be also the belief system of the parent. You know, I think of that 
story about Michael Jordan, you know, even though Michael Jordan said he was cut from, you know, his high school team, you know, the fact of the matter was that there were already varsity spots for him, his friends, you know, the returning players. So he didn't get as much playing time as he'd like. But the fact of the matter is, is no one predicted he would be one of the greatest basketball players of all time. You know, he's tall, but he's not that tall. He's a good athlete, but he's not that great. And he rose to greatness. You know, I think of that song, Believe You Can Fly or Believe You Can Fly or I Believe I Can Fly. It's about the belief, but it's about the belief on both ends, Lois. That's what I'm hearing you say. You believed in your child and in the face of teachers and educators who didn't. And thank goodness that your son followed your belief system. And he has a belief in himself, like must be like Michael Jordan, that is way beyond what I I th- thought of him. I didn't ever expect my son to get to Oxford. And if he did get there, I thought, oh, my goodness, how's he going to cope here? He's got a language problem. He did it. He got additional tutoring because they in Oxford they do an oral exam for the final exam. They write their thesis up and do this oral exam. His oral exam lasted five hours. So, yeah, and and he, the work he puts in and his persistence and his perseverance astound me. So they're capable of doing anything. Don't hold them back. No, no. I, you know, I had the luxury of, of taking care of my friend's son for three months when she had uh, surgery in Australia, in Brisbane, actually. And I was here in the States. I took care of her son. You know, it was an emergency uh, hip and knee replacement. And this little boy came to me with all these reports that was something, you know, he wasn't doing well in school. He wasn't bright. He wasn't this. And, you know, when the kids were playing in my pool, they put buckets on their head and pretended they were submarines. They were only like in fourth grade. He popped his head up and started telling me about all the different ships that sunk in Pearl Harbor. And he could tell me the name of the ship. He could tell me the length of the ship. He told me how many men had died. And I thought to myself, this isn't a kid that's that's not bright. This kid is actually super bright. And I think that, you know, these reports, whatever, are are judging on the wrong merit. And so I want to talk about that. Like, what do these tests really test uh, when we come back from the break? Because I know there's parents whose hearts are crushed because their kid has not done a good job according to the school or the state or the government standard. Now, we're visiting today with Lois Letchford and she has her book coming out reversed a memoir slated for publication in march of 2018 from acorn publishing you can find more about her at loisletchford.com when we come back from the break we're going to talk about what are tests really testing we'll be back after the break and more from these messages Stay with us. We've got lots more ahead. We'll be right back. It's marching Did you know one-third of population suffers from bad breath? Several years ago, a New York City doorman was actually suspended from work because people were complaining about his bad breath. Other words for foul-smelling breath are halitosis and ozostomia. So, what are common causes of ozostomia? 
Coffee is a problem because it's very acidic and bacteria reproduce faster in an acid environment. Candy and gum contain sugar, which is also a problem because sugar feeds the bacteria that cause bad breath. Alcohol is another culprit. What's another name for cheap wine? Plonk, slip slop, or stinky bus. It's marching day. I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words-you-never-heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. It's the Fitness Minute with fitness expert, Annette Hammond. Have you ever wondered what happens in your body when you exercise? Discovery Health explains that the muscles provide the strength, power, and endurance to do the movements and exercises. Enzymes within the muscles mobilize various fuels to provide ATP to meet the energy demands of the working muscle. The heart and the blood vessels increase the blood flow to deliver more oxygen to the working muscles. And the lungs increase the rate of breathing to deliver more oxygen to the muscle. The more often you exercise, the more conditioned you become. On the other hand, lack of training causes them to atrophy. So don't settle for being a couch potato. It's time to get your body moving. For the Fitness Minute, I'm Annette Hammond. To hear other fitness and weight loss tips, visit our website at AnnetteHammond.com. We're having a great discussion. Let's get back to it. Hey, ladies, this is Sandra Beck, and I'm here with Lois Lutchford, and we're talking about how to help our children who are not thriving in the current educational system. And this is no knock on every teacher. This is no blasting every educator and and every system out there. We're just talking about experiences that we had that didn't work for us, and here's some workarounds for those of you who need it. And Lois, recently I interviewed for a company to do some consulting work and they gave me this job match test to take. I had to go online and take this test. It took about an hour. And then they gave me a job match rating and a summary. And it was so funny for me to get this report because here I am. I've got an undergraduate and a graduate degree from Northwestern, you know, no chump school. I've had a proven track record of success. In fact, being recognized by the Wall Street Journal as one of the most successful in my field in this area. Now, granted, this was, you know, eight years ago, but still, I've proven that I can do the job. So I get this, take this test. It's an hour on on the computer, and I'm I'm pick, picking pictures. I'm making groups of words. I'm identifying vocabulary. You know, just doing doing whatever it is. I come out mediocre. I come out just. I don't even know why someone would hire me based on this report. But the funny thing is, I've already done, been there, done that in this job and done a really good job, in fact, nationally ranked job, but yet I didn't do so hot on their test. So what are they really testing? And I look at my brother, I look at me, I look at your son and, you know, so many more people out here that just because you can do well on a test doesn't predict with all accuracy, you're going to do well in life. I went to Northwestern Lois where there's a lot of rich, smart kids and not everybody's been superstars. Some of them haven't amounted to anything. You know, these predictors of future performance are 
to me, they're not worth the paper they're written on. I read my own summary of me. I don't think I would hire me based on this report. And how sad is that? I totally agree with you, and I can hear the frustration in your voice. And you are a competent adult. Right. I'm a competent, successful grown-up with enough awards to choke a horse. And, and yes, and they tell you, well, you're not up to scratch. Right. <laughs> and then you look at this, and I see red dots, I see yellow dots, I see only some good green dots. And I'm not even on the high end of mediocre, Lois. I'm on the low end. <laughs> You know, we we are people. We are made up of a whole range of things. What do we want? You know, and it's our thinking skills that may not be measured in the way that they are. Me I don't. I don't know why we do this to people. I don't know. And yet, like you know, you're bringing it back. This is what happened to my child when he was six and a half years old. Six years and four months, in fact. And he just refused to cooperate with the, the school counsellor doing the test. And she did not recognise that. He refused to work with her. And that's why he got such low scores. And I met another lady. She's, she does, uh, she's a Princeton. She's a professor at Princeton. And she came up to RPI to give a lecture. Well, I can't talk to her about engineering. So I talked to her about her children and I said, oh, have you got any children? And the lady, I think, almost burst into tears and she said, yes, our seven-year-old child has just been through seven hours of testing because he is not reading on grade level. Seven hours of testing. And then she said, you know, if he were reading, none of this would be a problem. And I think we've got the wrong end of the stick. The job is to teach children to read, not to make a mark against them. And, and my problem is when I come and take children to read, they have a file might be a foot high. I don't need to see any of that to teach them to read. What does that say? Now, if we know more about how to teach children, we need to rely less on the testing because it's not giving us the answers we need. And I remembered I was reading and listening to a man called Stuart Shanker from the Merritt Centre in Canada. And his words are, we have no idea of the potential of a six-year-old child. Right. And we have to remember that. And I think we have to see them more as rocket scientists. And if we look at them as rocket scientists, as six-year-olds who aren't getting it, I think it changes our brain and to make us say, what can I do to make this kid a rocket scientist? Right. And a lot of times I see, you know, my friends who have had challenges, they work ten times harder you know, like I saw my little brother, I saw myself, you know, my friends work so much harder than our peers that things came organically or naturally. And that really served us well when we got to be adults because we weren't afraid of hard work. We weren't afraid of challenges. And it's that fine line between being energized by your challenge and turning it into success and being defeated. And the defeat 
comes when the child or the adult loses faith in themselves. Yes, I totally agree with you. And I agree that, you know, I work much harder because I've overcome. I mean, the effort I've had in writing this book has been huge. And I look at my son and the amount of work that he puts in at all levels is just extraordinary to achieve what he's got. It is. It is. And I just, I want educators to rethink. But more importantly for me, I want the parents to rethink. I want the parents of friends to encourage these children and not look at them like a pool of undesirables. Yes. Yes. And what, and what are you going to do in my, cl- or what are you doing in my class? Right. Oh, oh. Right, or you don't want to be friends with that kid. That kid has problems or that kid has trouble. And, yes, there are some kids that have problems that do not make them for good friends. But somebody who's shy, you know, or like Logan who didn't want to talk, didn't want to speak because he was going to stutter. You know, I've taught my kids, and hopefully, you know, they're not perfect and they're not little angels, but they will welcome kids in. And if we teach that spirit of inclusion. Yes, yes. And we also get to experience, and this is one thing that's really important for me, Lois, is that, you know, I work in tech and my background is all in tech. So there's a lot of us that that struggled with eye contact, struggled with, you know, making friends and, you know, didn't get good at making friends till we were in our 20s. You know, there's there's all sorts of development that happens after high school that happens in our 20s, 30s, and 40s. It, you know, it doesn't just stop because we get out of high school or stop because we get out of grade school. And some of the most interesting people in the world are those who have faced these struggles. They've overcome them. And then once they've overcome them, they, they become unstoppable. And we want all children, not just the bright ones, not just the kids that are struggling, to think they are unstoppable. Why would we not? Well, you Where wonder you, then how much they, they push themselves because they have failed so early on and where the yeah. end you know, I'm looking at Nicholas now who, you know, is pushing himself and pushing himself. And I think, you know, just accept. And his experience at Oxford has just been astounding. And it has made him into an incredible man. But when is enough going to be enough? When do you have to say, it's all right, Nicholas, you don't have to push yourself anymore. You are okay. And I just wanted to take up, you said about accepting children. I wrote about an incident in my book And I went to visit school when Nicholas was in second grade and he was doing really quite well in second grade. He was much more comfortable in the classroom. And I happened to be there at lunchtime. And at lunchtime in our school, the children all sit around underneath the building with their lunchboxes and there's a lot of noise and a lot of chatter and everything going on. And I go up there And in amidst all this noise is my son sitting by himself against a concrete pillar with his lunchbox out in front of him to one side and a puddle of water to the other. And it's if to say, don't come near me, anyone. And he didn't talk to a soul and no one went near him. It was horrific. And I left the school in absolute tears because I couldn't believe my kid was so isolated. Did it bother him? Sorry? 
Did it bother him? Because there were times where I felt the isolation was comforting because I didn't have to deal with anything. Did it bother him or did it bother you? It certainly bothered me. I, he, I think, was choosing that, but it's, it's for many reasons. One, his hearing isn't great when there's a lot of noise. But, um, but the fact that no one would sit with him and accept him as he was, I think, really broke my heart. And yeah. it took him a long time to even talk to another child on the playground. Took a right, very right. time. Oh, my heart breaks with you. And I know what that feels like. I know that isolation. Some of it was by choice. Some of it is very self-protective too. Yes, uh, definitely very self-protective. I don't want to appear a fool. And when he did find a little friend, you know, it was, uh, you know, they were very quiet together and they had great fun together, but it was only in the classroom. It didn't go outside of the classroom. Interesting. Yeah, it took a long time. Yeah. And I, I breathe a sigh of relief and, it, you know, in my book I go through these emotions because that first year in school was absolutely horrendous. He couldn't even dress himself. And dressing himself involved putting on a pair of underpants, a pair of shorts, a T-shirt and a pair of socks. And he would just stand in front of the mirror. Like a deer in the headlights, totally frozen. So, Sandra, back to you. Yeah, well, but you know what? The whole point of this is look at where he is now. The little boy frozen in the mirror is now an Oxford PhD. Like, there is no better track record for that. And, you know, Lois, you put a lot of time and effort and energy into him. He did his part, and you had miraculous results. But I don't think they're all that miraculous if other parents would follow in your footsteps and, and challenge the status quo that my kid is dumb or my kid can't or my kid has problems so that our next generation can all grow up being the very best that they can be. On behalf of Lois Letchford and myself, Sandra Beck, check out her book, Reversed, a memoir for publication March 2018 by Acorn Publishing. We'll be back again next week. Thank you for being with us on Powered Up Talk Radio. We hope you'll join us again, find your purpose, and discover that what you are capable of achieving is a glorious gift. Powered Up Talk Radio is a production of Beck Multimedia.